Well, thank you, choir and Dan, Carol. We appreciate that, the work that you put into that. It is such a blessing to us to hear your voices, to be directed to the Lord and what He has done. Let's begin our time in the Word by praying to the Lord. Father in heaven, as we have heard sung, we ask that the eyes of our hearts would be open to now hear, read from your word, the truth of the resurrection and its significance. We pray that you would help us to take seriously the words of Christ and to ask what they might mean in our own lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew, beginning in chapter 16. We're going to look at several of Christ's prophecies about his own resurrection from the book of Matthew. And so I want to begin by looking at those texts. There'll be four of them, first in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 21. So Matthew 16:21 Verse 21 From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed And on the third day be raised. Then chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised On the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Then chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then lastly, chapter 26, verse 32 beginning in verse 30. Chapter 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, as we look at these four passages, these predictions all by Jesus of his own resurrection, I want to focus on three different aspects of the prophecies. And the first is on the third day. You heard that repeated on the third day, on the third day, he will be raised on the third day. Is it first the third day? That is such an ingrained phrase in our thinking. He rose on the third day. We take it for granted. What is the third day? Is it actually the third day? And so I want to look at Matthew chapter 12, go back a little bit earlier, Jesus' first reference to his death. He doesn't actually mention the resurrection, but it's implied. Matthew chapter 12, and look at verse 38. We take it for granted that he rose on the third day, but Matthew 12 presents a little bit of a difficulty. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Very interesting. Three days and three nights. Now, the traditional view, this is number one in your insert. The traditional view is Jesus died Friday afternoon or evening. He was buried Friday evening and was in the tomb from Friday evening to Sunday morning. That's the standard view. In fact, I would guess that almost every one of you in this room would say that if you were asked about his burial. But according to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said it would be three days and three nights. Now, if I told you, Amy and I are going on a vacation for three days and three nights, something fairly definite would come to your mind. You say, when are are you leaving? And I said, well, we're leaving Friday. And you'd do the math in your head and you'd say, Friday, Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night. Sunday, Sunday night. And you would ask, so are you coming back Monday? And if I said, no, Sunday, why? You would, what? I thought you said three days and three nights. Now, the question that we have to answer and ask is not what would I say or what would I mean by it, but what does Jesus mean by this phrase? What did he mean when he said three days and three nights? 
And before we look further, I want us to recognize that our own reckoning of days and nights has its own problems. There is no simple, easy, right way of talking about days and nights. You all expected me to say we would come back on Monday. But if we came back on Monday, in fact, how many days were we there? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and part of Monday, which is four days. Don't really think about that normally, do we? And unless we left precisely at the turn of the day, early in the morning, which would be rather unpleasant for a vacation, then we would come back on Monday. So the problem is not just with Jesus' words. The problem is with any of our explanations of days and nights. There's no obvious, easy answer. Now, in your notes, I've given you several Old Testament examples. You can look those up later. We won't have time to discuss most of them this morning. But they, follow, they seem to follow this pattern. In the ancient Near East in general, in the Old Testament and New Testament, this pattern seems to be followed. When we say several days, several nights, three days, three nights, seven days, seven nights, 40 days, 40 nights, that expression allows for the last night to be left out. Kind of interesting. So, if I asked you how long did it rain during the global flood in Genesis chapter 6, you would all say 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we know Noah got into the boat on that day. I presume that it was during the daytime. And if he got in on, or into the boat on that day, during the day, then when did the rain stop? Either it stopped in the middle of the night, or it stopped on the 41st day, or it stopped on the 40th day, and the nights included. Probably never thought about that before. I know I hadn't. Or another example, Job, after his uh, calamity comes to the knowledge of his friends, his friends come to him and they sit with him, and it says they sat with him seven days and seven nights. Same phrase, seven days, seven nights. Now, apparently in the narrative, they come to him during the day. Well, if we're going to try to apply the same logic to three days and three nights, then Job's friends had to begin their speaking in the middle of the night. Because if they spoke on the eighth day, that would be eight days and seven nights. I don't think so. That's not how it reads at all. The natural assumption would be that on the seventh day, that day and night is completed during the day. The last nights left off, and they would still say they began to speak on the seventh day, even though they sat silent for seven days and seven nights. So with Jesus buried Friday afternoon, probably towards evening, he was in the tomb Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and he arose Sunday morning. The last nights left out. They would say that's three days and three nights, 
And they would also say, as we read in Matthew, Matthew's not a knucklehead, he knows this, he's not going to put in contrary, contradictory statements. They would say, he rose on the third day, and he was in the tomb for three days and three nights. That's how they express it. We might express it differently. That doesn't mean that that's what Jesus intended. So he arose on the third day. From our modern perspective, this is interesting. Jesus was buried probably around 6 p.m. on Friday, somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. on Friday. He was in all Friday night, what we would call Friday night, all of Saturday and all of Saturday night, and he arose first thing on Sunday morning, probably around 6 a.m., could be a little bit later, but first light, somewhere around that time, which means how long was he actually in the grave? Only about 36 hours. That's about it. But we can call that 36 hours three days and three nights because he was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There we go. Now, that's Fairly simple math. We can figure that out if we do a little bit of thinking. But the bigger question to me is why three days? Have you ever asked that? We say it as a, as a, as a, uh, a given in our faith, three days. He was in the grave for three days. He rose on the third day. Why? Why three? Why not seven? Why not 40? Or why not one? Why three days? Well, there's a few reasons that Jesus was in the grave for three days. Some of the standard answers. Number one, to demonstrate that he truly died. If Jesus was in the tomb for only a day or part of a day, what would everybody say? He probably wasn't dead. He probably swooned or something like that. You've heard those silly theories. So to demonstrate that he truly died, he had to be in the grave a long enough time to demonstrate that he was truly dead. Second, and Pastor Jeremy mentioned this a few weeks ago in dealing with Psalm 16, but the second reason, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the second reason, why, why not seven or 40? Because the Messiah could not undergo decay. So number two is to ensure that he would not decay. If the body stays in the ground too long, it begins to decompose. And the Lord had promised that he would not let his anointed see corruption. He would not be corrupted. So seven would be too long. He would already be decaying. One would not be enough. And so we're left with somewhere two to four. Could, could be. Now, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter one to explain why three. We've narrowed it down a bit. Why three? And I think the answer comes from the book of Genesis, as so many important questions do. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, the very last verse of the chapter. 
And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he has done. Okay, now... When did God finish his work? It says in verse 31, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, I don't know about you, but for some reason, Saturday always comes to my mind when I think of the sixth day. Maybe it's because of the way our weeks are structured. That's not the sixth day. What's the sixth day? It's Friday. It's Friday. And when did he rest? He rested on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. No question. That's Saturday. So when did the new week begin? It began on Monday or Sunday, not Monday. <laughs> See, it's stuck in my head. So when Jesus on the cross cries out, it is finished, and yields up his spirit, when is it? It's Friday, just like his father had said it's finished when he finished creation on Friday. And what does his father do on Saturday? He rests from all his work. And what does Jesus do? He's resting on Saturday. And so when does he arise? First thing on Sunday. Interesting. And so number three, I think the reason it's three days is to follow the pattern of creation. To follow the pattern of creation. Jesus' death is a new, his burial is a new creation. His work is finished. And it begins again on Sunday. All right, so that's the first aspect on the third day. Second aspect I want to look at is he will be raised. He will be raised. Why does Jesus say... He will be raised instead of he will raise himself. Now, we believe that the resurrection is a great triumph of Christ. It's his great victory. So why does Christ say he will be raised rather than I will raise myself or the Son of Man will raise himself? Um, Some of you are thinking, I know a passage that says that. So turn there with me to John chapter 2. Verse 19, and he says something very similar to that. John chapter 2, verse 19, we'll begin in verse 18. John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John tells us, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, what do we understand from this? Jesus says, If you destroy this temple, my body... I will raise this body up in three days. Now, I believe at least in some sense we can say 
just as Jesus did, that he's participating in the resurrection. He is participating in his own resurrection. You can say, at least in a sense, Jesus raised himself up. But I find it very interesting that John 2 is really the only place where it's clearly said he's active. He's going to raise it up. We have many passages, many, that you could take either way, but they're not clear. He will rise. Not real clear. Is he raising himself or is he being risen? Well, either way, he's going to rise. But almost every passage that we find in the New Testament that talks specifically about who's raising whom puts Jesus in the passive. He's being raised. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that Jesus, as we read in Matthew, he will be raised, he will be raised when he is raised? Why is it passive? First, let me note, we don't find anywhere that Jesus raised himself. John 2 is the closest we get, and he doesn't actually say that. He says something that means something close, at least. But he doesn't actually say, and nowhere else in the New Testament do we find Jesus raised himself from the dead. And elsewhere in the New Testament, God raised Jesus. God raised Jesus. I've given you, I ran out of room, I just didn't have enough room to give you all the references. So I just started in Acts, gave you all of those, got to Romans, and I started 1 Corinthians and I ran out of space. They're a bunch more, all saying explicitly, God raised Jesus from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, so B, why is it be raised? Why is it passive? Why is it passive? First, the resurrection defeats death. The resurrection is a defeat of death. It is the death blow to death itself. That does not mean it's over, similar to the dropping of nuclear bombs on Japan. The battle was effectively over at that point, but we all know it wasn't. It was decided at that point, but it continued in a similar way. The resurrection means the game's over. God is going to win this game, but the game is not actually over. It still has to play out. The resurrection defeats death. But wouldn't that be true even if Christ raised himself? Yeah, it would, I think. And so that pushed me to think further, why is it passive? Why does Christ emphasize, I will be raised, I will be raised, and not, I will raise myself? So turn back to... Genesis, chapter 2 this time. I did not intend to make a connection to Genesis. That's simply where I found the answer. And the third one won't go back to Genesis, so that would be a stretch. Number 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Start, uh, Start at 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death was God's just curse upon Adam for rebelling against his holy law. And if the Lord God, the judge of the universe, declared that death is the penalty for sin, then who is the only one who can declare that that penalty has been paid for? The Lord God himself. And so even though in some way Christ participates in his own resurrection, he repeatedly says he will be raised because it is only the Father who declares the penalty of death is paid. Did Christ the Son pay the price? Who can answer that question? The Father who said, if you eat of it, you will die. And so he looks upon his son and he says, the penalty is paid. And so Jesus emphasizes, I'm going to be raised. Because in that raising, in God raising him from the dead, God is declaring, I'm satisfied. The penalty has been paid. And if Christ raised himself only, then it might appear we have two conflicting deities. But no, to show that God is satisfied with this penalty, God raises him from the dead. Now the third third aspect of these prophecies I want to look at is this strange statement, somewhat strange. Why? I don't get it. I will go before you to Galilee. Now look at Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 26. This is to his disciples the final prophecy of his resurrection. And it comes with a sting. This prediction really doesn't get much attention. This probably doesn't come to your mind when you think of what did Jesus say about his own resurrection? Verse 31, Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to... Galilee, and we read the rest earlier, Peter says, not me, I'm not going to fall away. So why does Jesus say, I will go before you to Galilee? First, why go before? Why not meet you there, or why not come after you? Why go before? Well, the obvious reason is that the disciples are in Jerusalem, they're in Jerusalem, so if, unless they're leading the way, he's got to go before them to Galilee. Second, after the darkest day imaginable, I, 
We, we, we think of Friday being dark. From the disciples' perspective, can you imagine a worse day than Saturday? It's over. He's dead. And it's a Sabbath. They can't do anything to busy themselves because they're not allowed to work. And all they can do is sit and contemplate what has happened. All our hopes are gone. And after the darkest day imaginable, the flock is scattered. They're in despondency and despair. They have no idea what to do. They're clueless. They're not heroes. They're not great men. They're little children. They don't know what to do. But Jesus is their leader, and so he goes before them to Galilee, and he tells them, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. He's still leading them. And third, more specifically than just being their leader, go before fits with the imagery that he uses in this section. What does he say? You will all fall away because of me this night. It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The third reason that he goes before is because Jesus is their shepherd. They're sheep. They need a shepherd. And Jesus is that shepherd. He is leading them, going before them. But he is shepherding them. While at the same time mirroring the creation account, while rising on the third day, and simultaneously satisfying God's curse of death upon our sin, our great master, victor in chief, is also a tender shepherd. He knows what the disciples are going to be going through. He knows what they'll be thinking, feeling, and experiencing. He tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And he hears Peter's oath, not me. He knows what he'll be going through. And so what does Jesus do? He tells them ahead of time, I will shepherd you. I will come back to you as a tender shepherd. You will stray. I will come and find you and to walk with them through their darkness. Why Galilee? Why Galilee? Kind of random. So the answer is back in Genesis chapter 4. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't turn to Genesis. Gal, Galilee, one, I think it's pretty obvious. Jesus is making it clear this will not be, when he goes before them to Galilee, that will not be his great conquest. This will not be his, what we now call second coming. They didn't quite get that yet. But this isn't going to be, okay, now are you going to return the kingdom to Israel? This will not be his conquest. That's a different event, and so to go to Galilee makes sense because if he said, I'm going to go before you to the Mount of Olives, what are they all going to expect? Second coming, or the, his conquest. Okay, second, Jesus' ministry was centered there, especially in the book of Matthew. Now, he ministered all over Israel. Uh, he went north, and he went south. He went west, and he went east, but the central uh, narratives of his ministry focus on Galilee. So it makes sense he's going back to Galilee. But third, and I think most significantly, who's from Galilee? 
most of them, possibly all of them, I'm not sure about several of them, but most of them are from Galilee. So his disciples were from there. Jesus' disciples were from there. Now this, I think, is most significant to whom? Peter. And Peter's home is their base of ministry. And so by telling them, I'm going to go before you to Galilee, what Jesus is saying is, compassionately, Peter, I'm going to go before you back home. I'm going to go meet you back at your home. I will not in anger distance myself from you. But in your straying and in your wandering, I will come to you. I will go before you. I will come to be with you. I'll be with you again along the sea. I'll be with you again and teach you how to fish. I'll be with you again and I will commission you to shepherd my flock once again as I did before. What a great Savior. What a great shepherd. And what a great creator. He is risen. Let us turn aside from everything contrary to his will and fix our eyes upon this great and chief shepherd, the one who goes before us and the one who invites us to him. And some of you today, I know, do not know him. You do not walk in his ways. Perhaps you feel like Peter, that you've denied him, that you're no good. But like he said to Peter, I will go before you if you will follow me. And Christ too will shepherd you. He will become your savior if you will put your trust, your hope, and your faith in him. Turn to him. And if you'd like to know more about that, I would be, Pastor Jeremy would be, any of the elders would be glad to tell you more about that. Let's bow in prayer. It is a marvel to me how many things you do at once. I can barely do one thing at a time. And while you are saving the world, satisfying the just penalty of sin, while you are following the pattern of creation, you also care about your helpless pathetic, suffering sheep. What a great shepherd. What a great savior. We praise you for what you have done and we ask that we might view you rightly as our God, our maker, and our deliverer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.